This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good 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 it is Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check in with Greg Murphy. Murphy, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Glove Stories with Murph, brought to you by the Bet Parks Casino Sportsbook and App. And also the great folks at Shy Vintage Sports and Phillies Nation. And we welcome in. We're really excited to talk to this guy, a guy that spent a couple of years in Philadelphia, but was a real fan favorite for sure. And uh, well, still resides in the Delaware Valley, makes his home there as well. We welcome in former Phillies pitcher Brandon Duckworth to the podcast today. Brandon, first of all, good to see you. I'm, look, I get a chance to see you from time to time as you make your way around the country scouting for the Yankees and also our kids swimming against one another from time to time as well, but uh, certainly good to have you, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your glove stories today. Oh, it's great to be here, Murph. Always a pleasure to see you, talk to you, and, you know, looking forward to uh, everything moving forward. All right, let's talk a little bit about young Brandon Duckworth, growing up in Utah, um, obviously a terrific athlete, as all you guys were uh, as you came through. What Was baseball always your sport? Was that always the go-to for you? Yeah, it always was. You know, I remember as a kid growing up, my mom always had the Cubs on. She was a big Ryan Sandberg fan. And okay. back then, you know, we had, what was it, Channel One. So, and and some of these things, we don't have all the stations and obviously yeah. all the electronics and whatnot. But, you know, we always seemed to watch the Chicago Cubs and listen to Harry Carey and Steve Stone and all those people and just watching the games. I love the game. My mom loved the game. My father was um, a president for the little league. So my brothers were playing that. So, you know, I was brought up at the baseball field, sitting on his lap as he announced everybody's names, watching my mom keep score. You know, um, it's funny because my mom was actually my coach as a little leaguer when I was nine. So, and kind of crazy, but we had two major leaguers on the same team come out of the same town. So myself and Ryan Jensen. Okay. You know, that's funny that you mentioned that's you're one of the first people to mention uh, that uh, at that early of an age, you also had another guy who was probably equally as accomplished as a young player. Uh, what do you what do you remember about Ryan? I mean, do you remember thinking to yourself, hey, this kid's pretty good? Yeah, you know, I mean, we were friends, obviously. We played on the same team from eight through ten. Um, and then we played together later on once we got into like the, you know, Babe Ruth type leagues. Yeah. But um you know, he would pitch, I would catch, and vice versa. So it was kind of, it was kind of crazy to think moving down the road. And uh, luck may have it, we both pitched against each other in the major leagues as well. Wow. So it was pretty crazy. It was, it was like the perfect storm, and everything came around full circle. And you know, it, it was a great experience. And you know, it was, I was, it's you kind of pinch yourself because that just doesn't happen. Yeah, what do you do? You, so you you literally pitched against one another in the big leagues. You faced one yes. another. What, what do you remember yeah, about in that? Philadelphia? <clears throat> neither one of us had our like best games. We we're probably trying too hard and whatnot. <laughs> but you know, but still, at the end of the day, you know, it was good quality outings. And you know, of course, I pitched to him. He would never pitch to me. <laughs> you know, he's like, I ain't pitching to you. you That's because you rake, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> that's that's funny. Were, were family and, and friends all there for that? No, they weren't. But no, no it, it was it was kind of a cool thing because I mean, you, to play against and in the big leagues against you know a yeah. former teammate from when you were seven eight years old and to pitch against one another is like beyond you know so no matter what we were no matter what the the final was we both you know had something that we could share and experience and uh, share with our children yeah that's that's kind of cool as a broadcaster i could tell you one thing we would have made a huge deal about that because that's a cool storyline for sure sure. (laughs) we would have we would have been talking about that all right let's go back so so you're you're growing up and and you're and you're playing baseball did you Played other sports too, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, I love to play a little bit of everything. I was always on the go. I had too much energy, and I think my mom just wanted me out of the house half the time. So, um, you know, I played football. I played basketball. I wostn't football was okay, but it wasn't really a love. I did it here or there, dabbled in mm-hmm. it, 
basketball, but, you know, baseball was my true passion. Um, <laughs> when I was so young, I remember my mom, she painted a black square on our center block wall and I would just go out and throw baseballs to it. You know, so I think from that early age, being able to do stuff like that, understanding how to throw the ball, where to throw the ball, learning on my own, because they didn't have yeah. really have experience, but uh, my mom came from a very athletic family and, you know, baseball and softball was like a, a big thing for them. It sounds like your mom was a bit of a trailblazer in terms of, uh, of getting you to the point where you were in, you know, nowadays we see women coaching little league all the time, but back then, not to, not to make you sound too old, mm -hmm. but back then you really didn't see that very often, right? No, you didn't. And, you know, she was good. She knew what she was doing, you know, especially for that age group. I mean, yeah. I think the most important thing that people don't realize is the positivity that you have to share with kids to make them love the game. And just, you know, the game's tough enough. And we see that today. I have my own uh, children that are, mm -hmm. you know, my son, he's 11 playing. And, you know, I try to explain stuff to them. And sometimes they take it personal. And, you like, no, 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 I'm trying to help you here. But you, there's that fine line where you got to instill confidence in kids. And, you know, I think that was a big thing for my mom. It's, she was always there and trying to push the confidence factor. And I think that meant a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's probably true in all walks of life when, right. when you stop and think about it in terms of parents and stuff. Um, all right. So so high school comes along. Um, at what point did you say to yourself, OK, you know, I feel as though if I continue to put the work in, I continue to to progress a little bit, that this might be something certainly I could take to college, but maybe even beyond. You know, I always had that dream, that aspiration to be a major league baseball player, watching them on TV and just seeing how they were. And just it was always something for me. Um, and then, you know, I happened to be a pretty good play baseball player at the time. But I had two older brothers. Usually the youngest seems to follow and, you know, they pass on everything. My oldest brother played college baseball. So I was like he was giving me all the information that he would get, you know, on top of having some talent. And, you know. When I was 13, 14, I was as good as all the other kids in the surrounding area and, you know, started playing on some of those all-star teams. Yeah. That's when we just first started doing anything in the fall. I think I might have been 13, 14 years old, but it was a really small schedule. And, you know, you were playing with some of the best kids throughout the whole Salt Lake Valley for me. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we had an all-star team out of that. I made that team. And then we would go play in um, a fall classic in Arizona and playing against some of the likes of, oh, heck, I think Roy Halladay was down there. Like, there, it was a big thing. Yeah. I didn't realize it. I was naive. I was growing up in Utah, not, not a whole big hot, you know, hotbed for yeah. baseball. Um, but, you know, I just always had that aspiration to work, work. And, you know, I did. I probably just didn't even realize everything going on at the time. Just, you know, I, I was good. I just aspired to go to college, no matter where it was. I just wanted to play baseball, get an education and, you know, continue to pursue, pursue that, uh, that goal and dream. And, you know, things manifested out of it. You know, I can't complain one bit. Oh, no. Um, at that point, were you, Pitching only, or were you still playing in the field at, at, at that no, point? I played both, you know, tacked yeah. even into college, you know, junior college. I went to junior college right out of high school because, mm -hmm. you know, I had a chance to go to some smaller schools and, you know, junior college fit. I thought I could do more, still be available for the draft, but I was a two-way player. I actually okay. was, ended up being a junior college All-American as a hitter. <laughs> so. Right. Crazy, and I was a switch hitter in college, and then I just went to right because I wanted to hit for more power. And you know, um, and when I went to uh, Cal State Fullerton, I transferred there after my sophomore year. I was I was a two way player at first. I'm like, this is too much. And on top of, I knew that if I was going to have any chance to make it, it was going to be on the mound. So you know, I just said after the fall, I'm like, I just want to pitch, and they're like, okay, no problem. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Cause so many times I hear so many times I hear pitchers 
say, you know, they, they just didn't want to let it go. You know, they wanted, they wanted to, to swing the bat. And obviously you get to swing the bat anymore, but he used to get to swing the bat as a pitcher uh, from time to time. But uh, was, so it was an easy decision for you because you just thought to yourself, this is the path for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought about it, but I, you know, looking back, I made a pretty dang mature decision at that time. Yeah. I mean, I was 20 years old. I'm just yeah. like, I just knew what I had to do, whether some divine intervention just kind of told me, look, you need to do this. However, it came about. I did it. I talked to them. They agreed and they said, all right, here we go. And then the rest is history. And then I just kind of really progressed through. I mean, I still enjoyed hitting. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Every pitcher enjoys to hit for the most part. No. <laughs> you know, especially if you were a former position player. So I've pitched and I played first base in junior college. So, okay. um, but from then on, you know, I still would handle the bat and do those things. And I just remember once getting to the big leagues, myself and Randy Wolf always had to have the spikes on just in case they need a pinch hitter or somebody needed to bunt, right. anything like that. Yeah, because you guys, you guys were athletes. Um, just out of curiosity, when does the hitting start to go away? You know, you're, you're an accomplished hitter for your entire life, but then – you start to worry about pitching and pitching only. How long does it take for that to kind of, when you get into the box, be like, oh, God, I kind of forget how to do this? It's like riding a bike, I think. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, you, you get back in the box. You know what you're doing, but I think your mind thinks you're better than you are because you're like, <laughs> that's like us. When we get older, you're like, oh, I could do that. You know, sure. Man, like, what was I thinking? You know, I can I totally jump that fence. No, <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> I, 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 I totally think that our minds say that we can always do something. That's the competitiveness with us. Yeah. Um, and so I think that you, you always think that you can do it. But I think that's what's kind of made us succeed in the realm of baseball is you never doubt yourself. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at your career hitting uh, statistics right now. And uh, <clears throat> lifetime 221 hitter in the big leagues. That is that is something to, to tip your cap to right there. Uh, you had, what, 113 at-bats and uh, 25 hits. You'll take that. I'll take that. Well, you know, my, my big thing was whenever I was hitting, I knew how mad I got when a pitcher would sit there and foul pitches off and do stuff. I was just trying to lengthen out pitches. Yeah. In all honesty, I would try to lengthen it out. I was going to try to work a count because I knew if I built, you know, I could get him frustrated because I would get frustrated with certain times when I couldn't get a pitcher out. They're like, really? Um, and funny story I'll, I'll lead into with that. But, um, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, you're doing everything you can. It's the team aspect. And I knew I wasn't counted on to hit. But if I could make him throw five, six pitches per at bat for me, maybe that that cuts down a full inning. Maybe he gets mad. Next thing you know, it leads to him making mistakes to the other part of the lineup. But yeah. That's, uh, uh, but, you know, a funny story is I remember pitching against Schilling in Arizona. and. I was having a battle with him and, you know, he's throwing fastball. You can't catch up to his fastball. It was one of those special riding fastballs that now we can kind of equate today, hopefully, <laughs> but nobody could hit it. And then I, I would foul it off and then all of a sudden he threw me a split and boom, hit a line drive up the middle, base hit. I see him the next day and he's, I won't say all the words he said, but <laughs> in other words, he's like, you're not that good. I said, well, Chill. You're the dummy that threw me something I could actually catch up to. He's like, fair point, but you're still not that good. I said, I got a hit off you, didn't I? That's all that matters. You know, exactly. it's, it's funny. I, I think that's part of the reason uh, that you really connected in Philadelphia as quickly as you did, um, because you were a gamer. You know, that, that's what I remember watching you play is that, uh, you know, every time you went out there, whether or not you had your best stuff, whether or not, um, you know, you, you just battled all the time. And, and in Philadelphia, that works, you know, that's what they want. They want a guy that looks like, uh, and, and is going out there and giving everything he's got no matter what. And I, and I do think that, that, that was your game in, in a lot of ways. Uh, so, so that's part of the reason that you did connect. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, that's a fair statement, you know, because I think growing up, I always had to overcome adversity. Um, 
You know, I wasn't supposed to do this. I wasn't supposed to do that. Right. And you take that to heart and you say, okay, I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove, you know, always, oh, well, you're good, but you're not as good as Johnny, Tommy, Timmy, Joey, whatever. And you're just like, oh, okay. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I could sit back and say, no, I wasn't as good. I was better. And yeah. just because my own determination, the heart and everything that I put into it, and, you know, you, you have to do that. You've got to grind because these are the best players in the world and mm -hmm. you're classified as one of them. I mean, that's a lot in itself, but to stay. And, you know, I, I think that's the toughest aspect that people don't realize is there's only 750. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it is something that I think about all the time uh, in terms of just, you know, how difficult it is for, for you guys to get there. And then as, as so many of you say all the time, and then to stay there, it's a, uh, it, it's a difficult thing. Um, I, I wonder as you travel the country now and you're scouting young players, how much of that um, attitude, that, uh, that makeup, do you, do you take to your reports and say, look, this guy might not be the most talented, but my God, you know, he's never going to give in a bad way. He's never going to, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, that goes into it. That's paramount. I mean, you got to have a, you know, a, a balance. I mean, you can have superstar after superstar, but as you see in like, say the NBA and some of those, sometimes that's not the best team to have. Right. Right. Um, you know, you got role players, you got superstars, you have everyday guys, you got, but you know, I think one thing is for sure. Coaches, front offices, fans, they love the, guy that is a hard-nosed player like a Chase Utley that may not have the talent that a Chase Utley had, you know, right. and just just pounds it and just like he's going everything he can. He may not be the most talented, but he outplays his tools. And you're always looking for those guys. And, yeah. you know, you, you try to put them in a bucket and, you know, on the scouting world and just say, I like this guy because X, Y, and Z. This is how he fits our club. Does he make us better? Does where does he fit? You know, um, it's kind of a puzzle for us, and you know, it's not easy by any means because you may see a guy terrible, and you're like, "What is going on? Why everybody talks so highly?" And you're seeing, and then you're diving deeper, and sometimes I dive too deep, and I'm over analytical, <laughs> yeah. and you know, but they know I'm going to do the work at the end yeah. of the day, and I, you know, I take pride in that, and you know, saying, "Hey." Whether he's right or wrong, you know the work was put in. Still a gamer. That's it. No matter what you're doing, I like that. Yes. Um, all right. Let's go back because I, you know, in doing my research and looking, you know, back at uh, at your early part of your career, I found this interesting because you don't often see this, and I, I'd kind of like you to explain it. So you were drafted by the Blue Jays in 1995, in the 30th round, and you didn't sign. Correct. And then drafted yeah. by Arizona in 96, but in the 61st round at that point. Um, yes. Most of the time you see it the other way where, where, where a guy waits and then, and then he jumps up a little bit. What, what were you thinking after, after being drafted by Arizona, are you thinking maybe I sh should have made an earlier decision kind of thing? Well, you know, I almost did sign with, um, Toronto, just the money, just to bypass school. I was trying to get to a certain amount because sure. back then you knew if you got to a certain amount, they were going to keep you around. I was a 19 year old kid right out yeah. of my, you know, freshman year, had a great year and everything worked out. I'm like, you know, I was close. It was really close. And then at the end of the day, they just didn't want to budge any further. And I'm like, look, I can go back to school. Not a big deal. Um, the next year I didn't have as good of a year. So that, you know, I think they were like, ah, oh, well, maybe last year just wasn't it. You know, I don't know what my velocities and stuff were, but then, you know, I always went and played in the summer. I went yeah. and played in them, you know, after my freshman year, I went to Kansas and that's, everybody's like, Whoa, that was back when they were drafting follows. They don't have that anymore. And I, but I think they might be coming back. So really? So if you're a junior college kid or a high school kid that goes to a junior college, they could draft you, see how it goes, and try to sign you before the next uh, draft. Interesting. So, uh, okay. But I didn't have a good year, so they bypassed. I was taken by Arizona. You know, nothing really came out of it. I went and played in um, Alaska that summer because I – 
committed to Cal State Fullerton. And that could have been why, because they're thinking, ah, he's going to go to Cal State Fullerton. Yeah. Transferred to Cal State Fullerton, had a good year. I was closing on Fridays, starting on Sundays. And then I got calls to be drafted. And, you know, but it was like seniors type money because from what I understand, I was told that I wasn't going to sign unless I got some stupid amount of money. I'm like, ask me, try me. All right. (laughs) Right. So we do that. And then I, you know, I go undrafted. I'm just like, then don't draft me. I'm not going to sign for a thousand dollars. I could do that next year. I'll have a year closer, if not finishing my uh, bachelor's degree. So I'm like, it's not life-changing money. What, what's a thousand dollars in the end of the day. Right. Um, and if I'm good enough, I'll go. If not, I continue on my school and move on to the next chapter. But then my so- or junior year, I went up and played in the Cape and everything just culminated and just yeah. came together and scout by the name of Dick Lawler, um, who just recently passed one of the all time great scouts for the Absolutely. A number of guys is like myself is, you know, a non-drafted free agent myself, Metallico, I think Mike Lavalier, you know, those are the three that I know off the top of my head as undrafted guys. So he signed me, I went in and just had to prove myself every step of the way. And, you know, fortunately enough, they gave me every opportunity and I was able to pass every test. You know, I, I wonder, had you had an easier path if your path would have been different? Because, you know, it sounds to me as though every challenge that someone presented to you of uh, being an undrafted free agent is a challenge to get to the big leagues. But 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 it almost is like that's the challenge you needed to, to, to motivate you and to, to keep pushing you. And, you know, if, if you had the easier path, perhaps maybe it would have been a little bit, a little different. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I think that comes without saying, I think just ever since I was a certain age, I think as soon as I hit the teen years, when I was being compared with everybody around, you know, people from, cause I grew up in an area that wasn't great as far as the schooling, you know, we were in a, an area that was, you know, not as wealthy as a lot of the areas that those kids were getting every opportunity and, you know, they pay to play in a lot of respects. Mm. And I think that actually was the determining factor on how I was able to progress through and just achieve and just kind of put my nose to the grindstone and say, here it is, I'm going to do it and I'm going to prove you all wrong. And it may take a while, but, you know, the cream's going to rise to the top. And that's what I tried to take myself and do. And I, you know, I pride myself on that. Tell me a little bit about uh, the Cape Cod League, because, uh, you know, for, for most of us, um, you know, all we have is the vision of, of Freddie Prince playing there. And, and, you know, I'm sure you hear that all the time, but, but it's true. I mean, the Cape Cod League, I had a buddy who coached in the Cape Cod League and he would tell me stories uh, about it. It, it. It's kind of a, in a lot of ways, I mean, baseball's very close to my heart, obviously, to yours. Um, so kind of a magical place, that Cape Cod League, the wooden bat league, you know, the summer, the weather up there, you know. And and I wonder your experience in the Cape Cod League. Was it was it truly just a special time? Was it a grind for you? How, how was it? No, it was a special time. You know, every every collegiate player wants to play in the Cape. And the story. I mean, yeah. I played in the Jayhawk League. I played in Alaska, which I wanted to play in every single league. You know, and I was able to play in the top three leagues at that time. Uh, but going up to Brewster for um, the Cape from Cal State Fullerton, originally they wanted me to go to Alaska. And I'm like, no, I'm going to the Cape. So, you know, needless to say, I got on the Cape, went to Brewster, played with a lot of guys that end up making play sure. with and against a lot of guys that end up making there, but you know, they're always the top players in the country. I always wanted to push myself and, you know, I was able to go there and right there, I think everything kind of really started to click, you know, because I start. they wanted me to only pitch out of the bullpen. And I'm like, wait a minute, I was a starter. Like why? And I don't know if it was to try to hide you because all the starters were there and then scouts would leave. I don't know. Um, but, and then all of a sudden I started and I'm like, I want to start. And I think there, in fact, the game that Dick Waller saw me, I think I punched out nine straight guys 
you know, that's great. All right. Um, but you know, velocity was there. I had some time off and then everything started to click up, but you know, it, it was a great experience. Obviously the weather it's just without saying it's, it's fun. And you're yeah. going to all these smaller towns and you're playing against the best players, not only college players, but all the best college players are all there. Um, some younger, some my same age, but you know, it, it's one of those stories that you just like you pinch yourself i mean just to get to that league let alone (laughs) advance right but you know just the atmosphere at a lot of the games and then you know i had to work at a a small store i was uh, gonna ask you that yeah it was called star market you know it just keeps going (laughs) through my mind i'm sitting there packing the freezers you know but that was just to make some extra money and it was great you know i enjoyed it i'm always the one that's up for the challenge and experience new things. I try to put myself in uncomfortable situations to see how I can, I can get through it because then I think that only makes you grow not only as a person, but also as an athlete when you're in those situations as well. Yeah. All right. Young people mark that one down because that's an important piece of uh, advice right there from Brandon Duckworth. Uh, put yourself in uncomfortable situations. That's, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, Mickey Morandini side note, Mickey Morandini told me when he was playing at the Cape that he was a house painter and that he, you know, he would just be out there shirt off and paint the house. He, you know, he, I think he thinks he's Freddie Prince. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not <laughs> I think he probably does. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I would have taken the, uh, st- the store stocking job. I think that would have been a little oh, bit yeah. better. All right. Um, <clears throat> so then you join the Phillies, free agent, undrafted free agent, and you start working your way through the minor leagues. And you weren't down there uh, very long before you got your chance, you know. And uh, again, did you get the sense as you worked your way through the minors that um, that it was going to happen for you? Or was it always just like, all right, I just got to keep on going. I got to keep on going and we'll see. Well, you know, you know, since I didn't get a lot of money to sign and I wasn't the drafted guy, once again, you had to prove yourself at every single level. Yeah. So you go into instructional league. I was limited on the amount of innings that I threw because I threw all summer plus my college. So, in fact, I was Jimmy Rollins and I were roommates that first my first instructional. league, Right. So come back spring training the next year. I break with the. It was the Piedmont Bull Weevils at the time in the <laughs> South Atlantic League. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was pitching great there. And, you know, I can't remember if it was July. I ended up going to Clearwater, pitched my way there. Um, one crazy fact is my very first year, I threw 200 innings in the minor leagues. Wow. You know, and they didn't even realize it. So that just told me that, like, I wasn't on, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't up there on the pecking order, but, you know, I took pride in trying to go out there and go six, seven innings and, you know, pitch my heart out. And, you know, that, that was the first year. And I don't, I don't think many guys have ever thrown 200 innings since on the minor leagues. I definitely not. I now. wouldn't That'll think so. Happen. Yeah. Um, but I was just, that was a goal of mine. I knew it was within reach and I got it on my very last start in Clearwater. And I, wow. who was it? I think it was Dancy or uh, Bill Dancy or Daryl Knowles. I'm like, oh, that just got me over 200 innings. They're like, what? What? <laughs> so I'm just like, well, that just tells me a pecking order way down at the bottom. But um, so pitch there had a great year. I think I led in pretty much every statistical category. Um, and then the next year, you know, they kept a huge group of us together. And that was the group that kind of started the whole thing off for the yeah. run of Philly. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Jimmy was a, a notch of just ahead of us. Uh, Burl signed that year when we were in the Florida State League. And, of course, they were going to push him. But, you know, myself, Eric Valant, heck, Johnny Estrada, Nick Punto, Jason Michaels, like we had a big group and then we played in the Florida State League and um, we had a guy by the name of Ryan Brandon. I don't know if you remember him. He was I a absolutely prospect. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you know, he took steps back because they tried to change his delivery and he was, they would never do that today, I don't think. Yeah. He was a closer, so right? Yeah. Really yeah. funky arm slot, heavy fastball, mid to upper 90s, just 
nasty. Nobody wanted to face him. He broke more bats than I'd ever seen, even when his velocity dropped into the low eight, uh, mid eighties, mid to upper eighties. But so we were together, but he came down. So I had to piggyback him. They wanted him to start. And I'm like, wait a minute. I, I'm all-star here. Like once again, I was on the back burner and then, you know, I got into a little rut myself to where, you know, I don't know if it was my own doing, just I couldn't get anything going. And, you know, I took it upon myself to talk to Daryl Knowles, like, hey, you know, what's going on? I'm worried here. This is what's happened. This has happened. And then eventually I finally got back going in a good routine and I finished strong. And Ruben Amaro Sr. asked if I wanted to go play winter ball down in Venezuela. I'm like, yeah, I'll make more money down there than I ever did in my minor league career. You know, so I went down there and honestly, that was probably the biggest and uh, best growth experience, not only as a player, but as a person. Um, I was down there for four months, myself, Jimmy Rollins, um, former uh, prospect for us, Reggie Taylor was there the whole time as well. Um, But I'm playing against major leaguers. Maglio Ordonez, Richard Hidalgo, you know, all these types of guys. Um, And you're just like, holy cow. Like, and I pissed great down there. You know, I didn't get sent home. That was a positive, right? But you're playing against them, but also you're seeing and putting yourself in a situation where you're in a third world country seeing how hard it is for these people that don't have the opportunities that we have. And you're seeing children on the corners panhandling for money or selling papers, selling fruit. And you're just like, wow, I really have it good. And it was a dangerous area and not as dangerous as it is today, but, but still, I mean, you had to really be careful. You had to have, you know, street smarts a bit, if you will. Um, But the growth experience for me there was paramount. If I, ran anything i would make it a point that every single prospect that i thought truly had a chance to make it would go put themselves in those uncomfortable situations and learn what it's like especially for those guys coming here you know the young latin players coming here and trying to get by without having a car not understanding the language just playing the game i think it was it it was tremendous for me i tell ruben Amaro Jr., the same thing. I, I tell everybody, like, yeah. that was the biggest growth experience for me in multiple areas, not only, you know, as a person, but also as an athlete. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we forget sometimes that the young players that come from the Latin American countries here to the States to play, you know, they're experiencing, not, not the safety issue as much, but they're experiencing a similar situation as they try and get ready to play big league ball or in the big leagues and still try trying to deal with learning the culture and learning the language. It's a yes. difficult thing. And I think organizations do a better job with it now, probably. I think we're more aware of it now. But, uh, you know, sometimes you wonder why a guy's struggling. And it could be as simple as, you know, he, he can't find the he can't find the supermarket. Or, you know, he doesn't have a car, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, it's little things like that. Yeah, um, you get a little homesick, whatever it yeah, may absolutely. be. I mean, you just, absolutely. you just never know, but you, you learn to persevere. And like I say, you just, you gotta, you gotta battle through stuff because life's not easy. And I've just always been that way. Maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. I think probably for sure. All right. So what do you remember about August 7th, 2001? You're on the mound for the first time in the big leagues. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at your numbers pretty darn good it was a good day for Brandon Duckworth it was a good day for the Phillies offense too but it was a good day for the for Brandon Duckworth yeah you know the one thing I will always remember is going out there on the mound Dennis Cook um, he was traded over from the Mets with Turk um, came up to me and said I want you to do yourself a favor you know with his you know little draw that he had and he's like I want you when you get on that mound I want you to Take a deep breath, step off, look at the stands, because that's the one and only time that you're ever going to have that experience. Yeah. You make in your major league debut, they call out your name. Your parents are in the stands. Fans are flocking in to see the new young prospects. And that's the one thing that you'll never forget. 
And I believe I faced Damian Jackson was the first hitter and he grounded out to Jimmy Rollins. Got my first hit off of Bobby Jones, you know, and I still remember Richie Hebner. I got the hit. He's like, take your helmet off, son. They're cheering for you. So I'm trying to <laughs> like, you know, and everybody gives me a hard time. I'm like, I don't know. Hack told me to do it. I just follow, you know, Hey, but it, it was a, it was a tremendous, tremendous feeling to know that I was able to get there with all my hard work, but not only my hard work, but you know, the belief in my mom and dad, yeah. cause they were, yeah. they were able to be there, you know, <clears throat> And something that that goal and aspiration that you always set for yourself actually became a reality. Yeah. And 21 years later, you could still hear the emotion in your voice because it is that special. And it yeah. is that and, and it is that special um, because not not many men get to that point uh, in their lives. And uh, you were surrounded by some pretty special talent in that clubhouse. Um, a lot of those guys were, were emerging at that point. You mentioned Jimmy a couple of times. Bobby Abreu's on that team. Scott Rowland's on that team uh, as well. Pat Burrell's on that team. You guys had some some serious talent, and and to your point, it was the beginning of the change in Philadelphia, and you were a part of that. That had to be pretty special. Yeah, it was. I mean, had I wished I could have been there for the long haul, sure, absolutely. But you know, you come to the realization that you know players are are chips to push push an organization ahead and you're a prospect or you're a young major leaguer. And if they need, Hey, we're going to have to give this guy up in order to really get this, you know, then they do it. You know, Jim Tomey came in right towards the end of my career and or you know, my time there in Philly, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden they start making trades and, you know, myself going to Houston for Billy Wagner with a couple other prospects, Taylor Buckholz and I think Ezekiel Stasio. But, you know, so you go there, you pinch yourself, but then you're kind of like, man, there was something special there, you know? Yeah. And I'd met my wife in Philly and, you know, of course she's flipping out, oh, you know, <laughs> but, you know, we weren't married at the time when, you know, it was my girlfriend and, you know, but everything became serious and, you know, but at the end of the day, if you look back myself and a bunch of the other guys that ended up getting traded, Carlos Silva, Nick Punto, you know, big groups of guys where Utley and them came in, they knew Utley was going to be a cornerstone. Sure. They knew that Jimmy Rollins was cornerstone. Unfortunately, they had to trade Scott Rowland, you know, but, you know, they got some good players there. And, you know, it was just a culmination of everything. And, you know, you know, Philly always <laughs> has a fondness in my heart. The crazy part is, is, my mom and dad, actually, my family started in Philadelphia. My brothers were born at the old Naval Hospital there. Well, there you go. I, it came full circle. Is really <laughs> how about that? How it all came, you know? Yeah. Um, I was. It was fortunate because, you know, I ended up winning the Paul Omens Award twice, back to back years, myself and Marlon Bird, and they flew my parents out, and you know, I knew they lived out there, but I didn't realize. You know, that they and they went to their old place where they lived, the old Pashon village, when it was like all abandoned before they tore it all out. And now you have all the new stuff there. But, you know, it was pretty cool to see them. But just to see it come full circle. Yeah, it was really amazing. I didn't know that about you. That, yeah. That's very interesting. That, that's very cool. Um, you mentioned, obviously, so. I mentioned a bunch of names. So Bobby Abreu wasn't there when, when it all culminated. Neither was Jim Tomey when it all culminated. And I've talked to both of those guys about that. Um, it, it, you know, but I think there's a certain level of pride. There should be uh, that uh, you certainly you guys were all part of the building blocks that that did make it, um, you know, culminate in 07, 08, 09 and, and the terrific run they had. But uh, as you said, not everybody can get there. But for you on to Kansas City, on to Houston, or on to Houston, on to Kansas City um, and, uh, you know, finishing out your major league career. And then in the middle of it over to Japan, right, um, where you where you did win a championship. And yes. I, I got to believe that was pretty special as well. Right. Oh, it really was. You know, I, you know, when I was, you know, kind of up and down right there uh, in the big leagues, you know, I, I, I had always wanted to go over to Japan. If I didn't make it here, I wanted to go play there. So, you know, that was a long time in the, in the making, but, you know, it was at the end of my career, but to go over there and experience 
you know, their baseball and just how it is, you know, it's completely like, it's a 180. It's like nothing changes. They bunt, they do all those little things. It's all contact, you know, but it, it was a, it was a great experience. And, you know, we won a championship over there. I was fortunate to play with the Masahiro Tanaka, who he was 24 wow. and oh, I'd never seen a pitching performance dominance like that. And I never will probably ever, not many people will, yeah. but you know, just to see the passion that they have for the game itself. And once again, put yourself into an, you know, a position where it's, it's hard and just, just always trying to test yourself. But, you know, it was a great experience. I love my family, love going over there. Great people, just very safe. And I speak nothing but positivity about how it was over there. And, you know, I, I still go back there today um, on the scouting side of things now, right. so which is great. And, you know, I get my dose of Japan and all the great sushi and, you know, Kobe steak. <laughs> if you I, need I someone to carry it. your bags, <laughs> let me know. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm all for it. Uh, well, we're running out of time. So, so but before I, I let you go, uh, I, I did want to ask you about the scouting life now, because so after your career is over, you almost immediately, right? Almost immediately yeah. joined uh, up with the Yankees organization. Um, to, and, you know, scouting has has changed over the years. But um, <clears throat> just in talking with you on the side, you know, the way you go about your job, it's very, very much old school with the new analytics and the, and the, the technology morphed in. But really, it's your eyeballs that, that are, are leading you towards – towards what you're doing each and every day, right? Yes. You know, I think you have you have to embrace new technology. I think it's tremendous. A lot of this stuff is tremendous. There's certain things that still have a ways to go, but I think to truly get the most out of yourself is, yes, you have your eye, you have your gut feelings, and then you know, on top of that, you got to understand the analytical aspects, kind of what they're looking for and how all of that works. And you, and you have to mesh it. And some people can do it better than others, whether I'm one of those people that's on the higher end or mid ground. I like to think I'm more on the higher end because, you know, there's times where I'll fight and say, no, this isn't who I think this guy is. But that's the conviction you have to have. Yeah. And I think they come to trust that. Well, why do you think that? Well, because I played with so-and-so and this is what reminds me of it. And, you know, I have to stick to my guns. Yeah, I see this. And, but I just don't think this paints the whole story. Um, you know, you can plug in all the numbers on say a catcher and he comes out to this high end everyday player. And you're like, this guy is not it. And then you explain it in detail within your summary of the player and say, I'm, I don't think he's what this um, Interesting thing is, so I think he fits more in this realm for X, Y, and Z reasons. And, you know, and they honestly, they like to hear why you think that, you know, sure. there's a lot that you can't, you can't put numbers on um, clubhouse presence. And there's certain things that there it's unmeasurable. You know, whether it's, is this guy a good guy in the clubhouse? What does he bring to the table outside of the physical tools and game tools? You know, they talk about, say, how, like, it was it Jason Hayward in the World Series, how he was able to, just a conversation with yeah. that, or a talk. And, and right. whatnot, you know, and, yeah. and you see a lot of that. And you see leadership qualities that may not show up in the box score, but, you know, hey, this is how this guy was, you know, you wished every guy had, you know, the guts, guile and whatnot on top of the talent, say, is it Chase Utley did, you know? Right. Yeah. That's easy to see. That's, but, that's what made him special. Right. Cause right? They're, they're few and far between. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately he would, he went so hard and he was such a good athlete that he broke down, you know? And but he had that it factor. You try to find guys with the it factor, yeah. and maybe they're not the most talented guy, but maybe they're a utility guy, and you explain how they make your team better. And then when it all comes together, and say you do get that player, and you're like, Holy cow, like we never would have seen that. And I think that's where we come in and using all of our um, experiences 
in and out of the clubhouse, having our connections to asking what type of a guy this guy is. Could he fit? You know, I think the toughest thing for us or me um, is, can this guy play in New York? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a question you have to ask about every single guy. Every one of them. You're (laughs) like, man, I mean, you've seen some guys like right now. I mean, if you look at it for us, you know, we um, acquired Joey Gow. He just never got comfortable. He's got talent. But, you know, or, you know, and you could say that about a number of guys, you know, guy that I pitched against all the time, Javi Vasquez. He did not pitch well in New York. A.J. Burnett had one year, but outside of that, like, you're thinking, man, these guys should thrive. But you truly don't know. Yeah. And no matter how much you dig into their backgrounds and their experiences, <clears throat> you, you really don't know until they get there. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. And, I, you know, I think the same questions probably are asked by the Philadelphia scouts in Boston and mm-hmm. Chicago guys. You know, you do have to take that into consideration because it's a different kind of place. All right. Final question, Brandon, before I let you go. Uh, I'm just curious because you're around the game. You're around the game at every level. Um, is baseball in a good spot right now? Do you think where, where, where would you say they are? Well, I think I think we we can be in a better spot, I think, with kind of the way young players are being used. That's where I have the biggest issue. Um, You have the travel ball, which is great. My son's in it, but I'm not a big advocate of every weekend. They're playing three to five games. There's only 10 to 11 kids. How many innings are they pitching? And everything is the stress level at 10 years old is too high. Oh, wait a minute. This isn't what it should be. Like, we want them to win, but I want them to learn the game, learn why they play a certain position, how each position works. I think in a lot of respects, the teaching isn't there, whether it's good or bad teaching. I mean, we all came up with people and coaches that, sure. you know, hey, they weren't, they didn't know. They don't have to be major leaguers. Yeah. You know, some of the best coaches and teachers were never major leaguers. Right. Right. Well, you know, some of the, best that played the game they just did it they can't teach they can't teach right um but i think there's too much is about oh i have to play on this team and this team and this team and this team and they're overplaying they're playing geez 60 to 80 games is these young kids and i think my worry is the amount of injuries and everything's based only around power how hard you throw and how far you hit it or how hard you hit it, you know, and we're losing some of the nuances of the game of guys that know how to play. Yeah. You don't, you can't make everybody a clone. Right. Cause yeah, as we talked about, you need different kinds of personalities. You need different kinds of players in that clubhouse to make it work. I think, you know, when you're talking about the youth guy, the sport, (laughs) the youth in the sport from age 10, 11 through 15, 16, maybe the most important thing is to teach these guys uh, to love the game because, because if you love the game, which, which obviously you did and do um, you're much more likely to give everything you've got um, because you, you, you want it to be a part of your life. So um, I definitely, the love of the game has to be there. It really does. But I think what's really missing early on, Early age and even now watching it in the major leagues, fundamentals. Oh yeah. Oh, Guys yeah. are not fundamentally sound. They're rushed through. And I think yeah. that really hurts. It yeah. really hurts. They want to hurry up and get guys to the big leagues at a young age to maximize their early years because at a certain age at 32, 31, oh, most likely they start to on the downslide. Oh, we got to get them there by 22, 23. I think we're doing not only the player, but potentially the game, a little bit of a disservice instead of, no, we're going to learn. We're going to do this. We're not going to push you. I think in certain respects, I think fundamentals need to really improve to improve the game. I would agree 100%. And hopefully, uh, I think enough people with with say have started to realize that. So hopefully we, we get a little bit back towards uh, those kinds of days, those kinds of teachings in the minor leagues, so that when the guys do arrive in the big leagues, they already have that. Uh, Brandon, I knew this would be a lot of 
fun. I always enjoy talking with you. Um, and I really appreciate your time, uh, taking some time out this morning to, to sit with us and tell us some of your glove stories. And uh, I'll always have the image of you stocking the shelves in the Cape Cod League now. It's stuck in my head. <laughs> you right. and Mickey now. You and Mickey. So, well, as long as um, Jessica Bill's running around, I think every yeah. kid would be really happy to do that. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, my right. wife would love to hear that. Uh, yeah. like, ah. <laughs> I said, it's nothing different than you watching hey. Brad Pitt on That's Legends right. Fall, That's right. right. Exactly right. And we should all live in a movie. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Brandon Duckworth. Uh, great to see you. I'm sure I'll see you real soon. And continued success with the, with the scouting and the New York Yankees. All right. Thanks, Mark. All right. Brandon Duckworth joining us here. We'll take a quick break. But uh, we'll be right back with more here on Glove Stories with Murph. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app is here for both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Get in on all the action, whether it's baseball, the basketball and hockey playoffs, golf, all your favorite sports. Download the all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app and make your first bet risk-free up to $750. Bet more than the score. Bet on individual player performances for hits, home runs, and strikeouts. Bet innings, first team to score, and more. Bet Parks is the only sportsbook and casino app that I recommend. The Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, where odds, bets, slots, and games all come together in perfect harmony right in your pocket. Sportsbook and all your favorite casino games for real money, all in one amazing app. Live in-game betting lets you bet while you watch the game. Download right now in the App Store, Google Play Store, or at BetParks.com and use my promo code MURF. Bet Parks is also an official proud betting operator of the PGA Tour. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to This Week in Philly Baseball History, presented by Shad Vintage Sports. This week in 2009, Matt Stairs' grand slam in the ninth inning of a game against Washington tied a 50-year club record for the most pinch hits in a season. Stairs is baseball's all-time leader in pinch hit home runs with 23. Celebrate more Philly sports history with clothing from Shad Vintage Sports, where there's a story in every stitch. Visit them at 13th and Walnut Streets or at shadsports.com. Phillies Nation is your source for breaking news, original analysis, trade insights, and more. Read today's articles at philliesnation.com. And welcome back, everybody, to Glove Stories with Murph, brought to you by the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, the Shive Vintage Sports, and the great folks at Phillies Nation as well. And from Phillies Nation, we welcome in Tim Kelly, the editorial director uh, for Phillies Nation. Tim, thanks for being with us, uh, as you are each and every month. And, uh, well, it's been a pretty good run since the last time you and I have talked about this particular Phillies team. You're in and around the ballpark every day. Uh, what has been your sense of these guys as they make this final push towards the postseason yeah I mean obviously they're going to have to exercise some demons in September but I, I do think you went into the last few Septembers kind of waiting for it to happen feeling like it was a matter of when does the the collapse kind of take hmm. place and I, I don't enter September this year thinking that that doesn't mean they're going to storm back and win the NL East but uh, I, I do anticipate they're going to be in the playoffs yeah I, I think there's a sense to that uh, this year, obviously different personnel, um, a new manager, uh, a little bit of a different feel in and around that clubhouse. Is there one or two things that you put your finger on that uh, that you can point to, whether it be an individual or just uh, maybe a, you know a skill set that they have now that they didn't have in the past? Well, I mean, I would point to some of the the lows that they've had even since Rob Thompson's taken over. They came out of the all-star break and got swept by a bad Cubs team and then ran off a bunch of wins. They had uh, a series where they lost three or four to the Mets, and then they took care of the Reds and the Pirates right after that. So they've shown that when things get low for a few days, it doesn't start to snowball, which I think was the issue over the last few years is you just couldn't stop the bleeding. They didn't yeah. do that. And then some this year. Yeah. And I would agree with you. Um, again, it, you know, with the new personnel that they brought in this year, you know, a guy like Kyle Schwarber um, seems to be a guy that can 
walk around that clubhouse and instantly change the mood, instantly change the the, the karma if things aren't going well. Um, those guys are important to have in the clubhouse, and they might not have had enough of that in the past. Would you agree? Yeah, and I, I think even though he's had somewhat of a disappointing first season, Nick Castellanos kind of falls into that category. I agree. Of, yeah. They talked about trying to have guys with edge, and I think the 07 to 11 Phillies, you had like Aaron Rowan at the front half of that, but you had Jason Worth, you had Pat Burrell. It, it doesn't always necessarily have to be the guy that has – uh, the, the best numbers on the team, although Kyle Schwarber's having an excellent season, but a, a guy that has the respect of everybody in the locker room. And there are just some guys you can look at and say that guy is a winner everywhere he's gone. And I, I think Kyle Schwarber in a lot of senses fits that bill. Yeah, I agree. And then Rob Thompson has pointed to a couple of times just the way this bullpen has pitched. Uh, and they, they went through a little bit of a short period where they weren't as sharp um, at the very end of August. However, for the most part, when you hand the baseball to the back end of this bullpen, you feel pretty good that they're going to be able to lock it down where in years past, obviously, you know, you're sitting on the edge of your seat. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that's another one of the reasons I head into September with confidence is you've lost Sir Anthony Dominguez and you've kept going. You lost Zach Wheeler briefly, you kept going. You lost Bryce Harper and Gene Segura for extended periods and you kept going. Like, I, I really do think if you, that happens over any of the last three seasons, that was probably the nail in the coffin for the team. Uh, but good teams just kind of keep going even when the talent isn't necessarily there. And the Phillies have done that. And I look around at the bullpen and there's three or four guys that would have been the best reliever on the Phillies the last two yeah. or three years that you now have at the back end of that bullpen. So I think you're in good shape and you'll be in great shape if you get Sir Anthony Dominguez back. Yeah, and it does sound like he's trending in that direction. And, you know, we're taping this uh, at the very beginning of September. So hopefully if folks are listening a little bit later, he is back at that point. Uh, we talked to him yesterday and he says he feels really good. So um, obviously a huge huge part of that bullpen and kind of resets everybody in the back end. So getting him back would be terrific. Um, the, the excitement around this team right now, the excitement in the city of Philadelphia is starting to build. And, you know, it's a feeling that we remember, you know, as early as I guess the last time was two, or the early part was 2006. Um, when you thought to yourself, okay, you know, you know, September is going to be, September is going to be fun here in Philadelphia. Um, certainly more fun if they continue to win more than they lose and, and keep pace uh, in that wild card race. But um, it's it's a special time, is it not, Tim, in this city when when the baseball team is playing well? Uh, the, the Eagles will be back, but people will be paying attention to baseball as well. Yeah, and I think that's the case. There are some people, I think, kind of waiting to see the first week of September that there isn't kind of a collapse but yeah yeah I mean what once you, you get through that assuming that the Phillies do get through that I think you really start to see some people buy in it will help that it's not going to be hopefully it's not going to be 100 degrees every day anymore I do think that that's a very real factor that's uh, contributed to the fact that the Phillies maybe haven't had attendance where it was 10 or 15 years ago so uh that's something to consider but yeah i mean you, you get through some of these bad teams you start to get to uh down the stretch and i think citizens bank park i don't know if it'll be sold out every night but i think you talk about thirty-five thousand plus every night yeah you mentioned the division the mets and the braves pretty much um, are battling out for that spot at this point. I think it's fair to say Phils don't win the NL East this year, barring something miraculous. Um, but that's okay because as we've seen over the last couple of years, get into the postseason tournament and anything can happen. And in fact, if you go back the last well, three of the last four years, um, you can you could say you know it was a team that kind of came out of nowhere once they got in. Um, so the the idea that they come in does it matter for you uh where they slot in in the postseason in terms of first wild card second wild card third kind of thing well i mean if you get the first wild card that's great i i think you're probably looking more at the second or third wild card at this point i don't think you're going to catch whichever team doesn't win the nl east so uh, yeah, I mean, if they're the right now, uh, I think if they're the second wild card, they play the 
Braves. And if they're the third wild card, they play the Cardinals. And in theory, it's better to be second than third. But I do think a lot of people feel like the Phillies would have a better shot to beat the Cardinals. But uh, I'm old enough to remember 2011 when yes. wanted the Phillies <laughs> to play the Cardinals instead of the Braves. So uh, I, I'd say just just get in and let the rest take care of itself. I'm old enough to remember uh, aging in 2011, like physically feeling it when it happened <laughs> because that was a tough road. You know what? Yeah, it's like almost be careful what you wish for kind of thing, right? Um, because we wished for that back then and, and got exactly what uh, what we asked for. So um, I would agree. Now, look, it, so so it leads me to my next question. Are you more impressed with this Phillies team and the way they've played against take the Mets out of the equation, but the way they played against really good teams this year, and they have played very well against good teams this year, or are you more impressed with the way they've been able to take care of business against bad teams this year? That's a good question. I mean, I I think I would say I'm more impressed by the fact that you've played really well against pretty much every team, except uh, the Mets you've gone 500 or above against some of these really good teams and that for the playoffs. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do see some people saying, oh, the second Phillies lose like one game, well, they just beat up on a bunch of bad teams. The reason they didn't make the playoffs the last few years is because they didn't beat up on those bad teams. Maybe yeah. they took two out of four when you needed to take three out of four. They've had some series against the Diamondbacks, the Cubs, the Rangers, where they should have done better. But by and large, uh, they took five out of six from the Pirates. They played very well against the Reds. Like, they've done what they've needed to do. They've uh, I don't want to jinx anything, but they've seemingly moved past the whole Marlins thing. So, <laughs> I'll knock on wood over here. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think that there's something to be said. Like one is more impressive, but the other is what gets you into the playoffs. I think being able to beat the bad teams. I think fans forget that uh, while the Phillies are beating up on the Reds and the Pirates, the Braves are beating up on, you know, the bottom feeders in the West or or in the American League. Everybody is beating up, if you're going to be a postseason team, on the bad teams. That's how it works. And uh, so it's not just that you play your schedule and, uh, and you know, next year it'll be even more balanced, but it's a relatively balanced schedule. Uh, you can only do what you can do. So, all right, Tim, so give, put on your little uh, hat and crystal ball and 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 look forward for me they've got uh you know a couple weeks still to play but um the schedule is favorable so in your mind is is this a postseason team are we playing are the phillies playing in october the phillies are playing in october it remains to be seen if they're playing in philadelphia in october because obviously the wild card series is going to be all on the road yeah. st louis or atlanta which I think there's a percentage of fans that don't know that yet, and it'll be kind of a sad moment when they realize it. But (laughs) uh, if they can get through that, then you get back to the traditional NLDS and you would have some games here. So uh, I do think they're in the playoffs. Whether that means playoff baseball comes back to Citizens Bank Park or not remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right about that since it's all brand new. The, The wild card series will begin. It's three straight days, and it's in the higher seed city, and that's it. Or they don't travel, so it'll be three games in St. Louis, in Atlanta, or if the Phils are able to jump in Philadelphia. But uh, I that doesn't – I don't know if I'm, I'm quasi-optimistic, but that doesn't really scare me. I think the Phils have played really well on the road this year. They have the pitching, if it lines up, that they can win in any ballpark in America. So the the idea – I mean, all the, it would be great for the fans, but the idea that they might have to play – you know, win two games out of three on the road – Certainly think that's possible for this team. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you would probably feel better in St. Louis, A, because they've done that in St. Louis this year. But just uh, the history of the Phillies since Truist Park is open is not particularly good down there. So it is a different team, but I, I do think that uh, St. Louis you'd probably feel more comfortable going into. But, I mean, you, you look around the team, they're – there is kind of a magic with the Cardinals this year with Albert Poole's final season. Yeah. Uh, Otto and Goldschmidt are probably at the back half of their peaks. Yachty's final season. Wainwright's still good. So uh, either way, you're, you're going to have your work cut out. 
Yeah, but folks in St. Louis are probably looking at this Phillies roster and saying a similar kind of thing. So, um, you know, and in Atlanta, and 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 the Phillies have played well against both those teams. All right, final question before I let you go, Tim. Uh, when you're connecting with your readers uh, through Phillies Nation, um, do you get the sense that uh, that there's some excitement around this team, or is it more trepidation? You got to show me because it's been so long. I think that it's a little bit of both, but last year it was like. Uh, you're basically you're guilty until proven innocent. I don't think right. it's that case this year. I, I think okay. people expect them to do well, but there is still that back half of your mind that you have to get over what's plagued you in September the last few years. That's interesting. It's interesting. Well, they've got some astute uh, readers over there at Phillies Nation because uh, I, I can sense that. I think that's probably probably the way it should be right now. You know, you, get, you still got to prove it at some point. Uh, Tim Kelly, the editorial director for Phillies Nation, joining us here on Glove Stories with Murph. Tim, always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Murph. All right. We'll take a quick break. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome to This Week in Philly Baseball History, presented by Shive Vintage Sports. This week in 2009, Matt Stairs' grand slam in the ninth inning of a game against Washington tied a 50-year club record for the most pinch hits in a season. Stairs is baseball's all-time leader in pinch hit home runs with 23. Celebrate more Philly sports history with clothing from Shad Vintage Sports, where there's a story in every stitch. Visit them at 13th and Walnut Streets or at shadsports.com. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app is here for both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Get in on all the action, whether it's baseball, the basketball and hockey playoffs, golf, all your favorite sports. Download the all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app and make your first bet risk-free up to $750. Bet more than the score. Bet on individual player performances for hits, home runs, and strikeouts. Bet innings, first team to score, and more. Bet Parks is the only sportsbook and casino app that I recommend. The Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, where odds, bets, slots, and games all come together in perfect harmony right in your pocket. Sportsbook and all your favorite casino games for real money, all in one amazing app. Live in-game betting lets you bet while you watch the game. Download right now in the App Store, Google Play Store, or at BetParks.com and use my promo code MURPH. Bet Parks is also an official proud betting operator of the PGA Tour. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Phillies Nation is your source for breaking news, original analysis, trade insights, and more. Read today's articles at philliesnation.com. Glove Stories with Murph is sponsored by the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, along with Shine Vintage Sports and Phillies Nation, and is a presentation of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of the major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2022 Major League Baseball season.